I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the 27th chapter of the book of Acts. This is the book we've been studying for several weeks and months, and we're near the end of it. So thank you, Melody, for singing, and looking forward to singing that as a congregation in the coming weeks. It was November 9th, 1975, when what was called the Titanic of the Great Lakes, the largest ship of its kind, was being loaded up with iron ore from the Iron Range of northern Minnesota there in the port of Superior, Wisconsin. The ship is called the Edmund Fitzgerald that was over 730 feet long. 26,000 tons of this iron ore. And as Captain McSorley surveyed the weather for later that day, he was aware that there would be a storm front that would be coming in over Lake Superior. So when he chose his path to take this large shipment to a steel mill in Detroit, he chose a northern route where he could hug the shoreline of the Canadian side. Unfortunately, he was not protected as much as he would have liked. And as he made his voyage in attempting to get to the protection of Whitefish Bay, he never got there. And near Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, this vast vessel and all 29 crew members plummeted into the icy waters of Lake Superior to a depth of 535 feet. None of those bodies were found. It is one of those shipwrecks that has intrigue and mystery that surrounds it even to this day. And in 1976, a Canadian songwriter by the name of Gordon Lightfoot penned these familiar words when he said, Superior, they said, never gives up her dead when the gales of November come early. If I were to poll the average person in our congregation today and ask them, what are some of the most famous shipwrecks? If you are from Wisconsin or Michigan, I'm going to guess you would have said to Edmund Fitzgerald somewhere on your list. And there would also be some that would say the Titanic, right? Well, I hope that in the next 45 or 30 minutes or so, you would include the shipwreck that we find in Acts chapter 27 as well. This is a masterful description that we get to see where we learn that it is important to God, not only when we're here at church, but as we go and come as well. We have been seeing the Apostle Paul as he stood firm for the gospel. He preached it courageously and churches were established. In recent weeks, we found that this has landed him in jail. But he has been assured that he will get to go from Caesarea to Rome. So chapter 27 chronicles that travel from Caesarea, not quite to Rome, but at least closer to Rome. So why don't you follow along with me as we look here at Acts chapter 27. We've got 44 verses to cover today, and we'll just handle them one at a time. Beginning in verse 1, where it says, And it was decided 
that we should sail for Italy. They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. You'll note there that Paul arrives at the port city, and perhaps there is someone that says, we have a a, a wonderful journey ahead of you. It should take about five weeks. We want to let you know that there will be two legs to this journey. You'll be taking a small ship that will be hugging the coastline, and eventually you will get to a larger ship that should take you home. You will be accompanied by not only yourself, but you'll notice that there are other prisoners. Now, what might these other prisoners be in store for? Well, if you know your Roman history, you know that there would be contestants in the Roman Colosseum that would be brought before the people for entertainment, that they would kill one another or be challenged by wild beasts. You'll also note that Paul is under the authority of a centurion by the name of Julius. Now, those of you who have read through the New Testament and you've had a keen eye on these centurion soldiers, you know that the New Testament often puts them in a favorable light. A centurion was one who was in charge of a hundred other soldiers. And we read of a centurion in Matthew chapter 8 that came to Jesus because his servant was in need of attention. In Matthew 8, verse 6, that centurion says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, well, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. There's another centurion in Matthew chapter 27 that stood at the foot of the cross. And after Jesus died, a great earthquake swept through the land. And the centurion said, truly this was the Son of God. And then in this very book, in Acts chapter 10, a different centurion by the name of Cornelius was a God-fearing man. He led his family to fear God as well. They were generous to the poor. They prayed continuously to God. And God would use this centurion to open the door to other Gentiles that they would hear the gospel. So we see this centurion here in verse 1 that we will find out in just a few verses that he is kind to Paul. Look with me now at verse 2. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Astarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon. And Julius, that's that centurion, treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. You see that Paul is not alone. If you read between the lines, he is accompanied by at least two of his dear friends. One we read directly in verse 2, Aristarchus. He is a Thessalonican Christian. We read about him in Acts chapter 19, where he accompanied Paul in Ephesus. When a great riot broke out, he was right beside Paul. He also accompanied Paul to Jerusalem with that massive offering that they wanted to give to the Jewish Christians. In Colossians 4, he's identified as a fellow prisoner. In Philemon 23, he is a fellow worker of Paul. He's not only Aristarchus there, but as you read the words, we came with Paul, this is also the author of Acts, Luke himself. 
Now, some have asked, how is it possible a prisoner could bring two of his buddies on the ship? And there's at least two different possibilities. One, he convinced authorities that they were his servants. Luke was his personal doctor. Aristarchus was his slave, and he he would attend to his needs. The second possibility, of which I lean more towards, is that the, the leader, the king, that would be Agrippa or Festus, when they made the decision to send him to Rome, they knew very well that he was innocent. And as a result, would give him a little special treatment. You want to bring your buddies with you? You go right ahead. And they arrive here in Sidon. And while they are there, we see that there is a church that is already present. And this Cornelius, rather, this centurion allows him to go. And say, you can be with your Christian friends for a while. And they are ministering to him. I think before we move on, it's important to point out that as we've read about Paul in recent weeks, who has a backbone made of titanium, who never seems to back down from a challenge, who is always courageous to share the gospel, even if it's to a king. He has consistently surrounded himself by godly people. Friends matter to Paul. And listen to me. If that is true of Paul, then who in the world are you to say that you don't need Christian friends either? We need intentional, godly friends that will encourage us in our Christian walk. In fact, this morning we're excited to have been able to launch a full slate of Bible studies that began at 9.30. And then those of you who are not able to attend that, come to a home study that begins at 5.30. The whole purpose of this is to have some intentional, deep friendships to encourage us in our walk with Jesus. Let's pick up where we left off here, beginning in verse 4. And putting out the sea, and from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the Sea of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria, sailing for Italy, and put us on board. It is here where they got their connecting, not flight, but their connecting boat. This boat would allow them not to have to hug the shoreline, but to go out more to the seas. Let me give you a little information on this ship. It was about 140 feet long. But it could not navigate through wind very well. There is a technique in sailing, I understand, that's called tacking. This idea that if the wind is blowing in your face... In sailing, you can navigate forward or sideways and make your way into that wind. But not this large, cumbersome ship. It was navigated with big paddles. And if a big storm would come up or a strong wind, it would blow this ship wherever that wind was blowing. We'll find out here in a moment that this was a ship that was going from Egypt to Italy loaded with grain or wheat. We see here in verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Sindus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off of Siloam. Verse 8, casting all along with the difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, 
there which was the city of Lasa. Now, if you've got a, a, a sermon outline with you, you can flip it over on the back and you'll see a map. If you have a magnifying glass, you can see all the different port towns of the journey of this trip. Right in the middle of your map, you'll see this tiny little island called Crete. And, and underneath it, you'll see Fair Havens. And this is where they had arrived. Verse 9 says, Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over. Let's just pause. What is this fast? A good Jew would know that there was one day a year that they were to fast. What day was that, church? It was the Day of Atonement. That's right. And so this would have been either late September or early October. No one in their right mind would sail during the winter months. So they are looking for a place to settle in. Look with me at verse 10, saying, this is Paul saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Here you have the preacher back in this boat, full of men or women, maybe, and he is saying, I believe we should bed down here in this port city. I don't think we should go out any further. Now, who is this preacher to speak up with all these skilled shipmen? If you look at that map, and you've been with us through the series of Acts, then you know that he has traveled along those seas frequently. In fact, one Bible scholar says he has had 11 voyages on these seas. 3,500 miles on this boat. It is possible that Paul, as he looked out at those seas, was more experienced on those seas than any of those people in that ship. Well, did they take his advice? Let's look at verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out the sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now listen, if you're looking for a place to go for the winter months, Phoenix is a good place, amen? (laughs) Now this is not the Phoenix of Arizona, but this is the Phoenix of Crete. And that's where they were trying to get, some 40 miles from where they were. They didn't take Paul's advice. They went ahead and did what they wanted to do. How did that go for them? Let's look at verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to shore. As they set out from that harbor, there was a gentle breeze that blew across. And can you see the captain and the owner and the centurion and the cruisemen with a big smile across their face saying, we were right all along. Look at this beautiful gentle breeze. We'll be in Phoenix in no time. Hey, what's that up there? Is that, is that a storm cloud? Because we read here in verse 14, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck from land. And when the ship was caught up and could not face the wind, 
Remember, it was too big and bulky of a ship. We gave way to it and were driven along. And so now we're going to see as this big storm, a typhoon is sweeping through, and this, this ship is under the mercy of that wind, they're going to do five different things. The first thing we see is verse 16. Running under the lee of the small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. So the boat had a little dinghy, a small little boat, a safety boat. They brought that on up in the big boat. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, they used supporters to undergird the ship. The second thing they did is they took ropes or or cables of some sort and wrapped it around the front of the ship so that when it smashed into the waves, it would be held. The third thing we did is it says here, then fearing that they would run aground on the Cyrus, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. So the third thing they did is they put anchors down. Now sometimes you put anchors down to to keep you in place. Other times you put anchors down to slow your progress, and that's what they were doing here. Verse 18 says, Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began on the next day to jettison, this is the fourth thing they did, jettison the cargo. What was in that ship? Grain and wheat. And they began to chuck it out to get that ship so it'd be lighter. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle away. And I look over here at my son, who's a big fisherman, and he's got a tackle box. We're not talking here about rapalas and crankbaits and, and daredevils. When we're talking tackle here, we're talking about the desk, the, the beds, the dressers that were on the ship. Anything that wasn't necessary to have on the ship, they were throwing it out. Verse 20 said, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. There was no GPS, no navigational system, not even a compass during the first century. They couldn't even look up to see the sun or the stars to know what direction they were going because the storm was so violent. So let's just pause here and let's just think about storms for a little bit. Let me give you a few truths that I can think we can see from the first several verses of this passage. Number one, storms happen. Storms happen. For over two years, Paul has been imprisoned. If ever there was a man that deserved a gentle boat ride, it was Paul. But nothing comes easy for this brother. A trip that should take five weeks will take four months. In recent weeks, we saw that Jesus promised Paul that he would get to go to Rome, but he did not promise a gentle boat ride. It was F.B. Meyer that said this, If I am told that I am to take a journey that is a dangerous trip, every jolt along the way will remind me that I'm on the right road. Isn't that true? If someone said to you in February, I need you to go to Wausau and it will be a treacherous drive. And so you load up your vehicle and as you start heading west on Highway 29, the snow begins to fly sideways and your windshield wipers can't even keep up with it. 
the snow is covering the highway. And every couple of miles, you'll see another road, another car that is in the shoulder. And then you see a semi that comes on the passing lane and just drives by you and leaves a wake of slush on your windshield and your hood. And then you see a guy in an SUV that thinks he's invincible and he goes 75 miles an hour and he passes you on the left. This is like, this is exactly what you would expect. A treacherous, dangerous drive. That's exactly what I've been told was going to happen. And I'm wondering if you might be like me. As Christians, we can think, if I'm obeying God, shouldn't it go well for me? Shouldn't there be just hardly any trouble? Shouldn't it be just full of peace and comfort? Well, as we look at Paul's life here, we see that obedience sometimes leads to storms. I would remind you in Matthew chapter 14 where Jesus told the disciples to get into the boat. And what happened once they were in that boat? A great storm swept across the sea and the waves banged into the side of that boat. And we might say, are they in the will of God? Yes. One of our favorite things to do as a family is to go up to Door County either on the lake side or the bay side and grab the stones and shoot them with a slingshot or to skip them. And there is something about those stones that they are so smooth. How did they get like that? It is the beating and the pounding of the waves, isn't it? Does God not use that beating and the pounding of hardships in our life to smooth out our character defects. So the first is storms happen. Let me give you a second, I think, in the first 20 verses here. Storms reveal essentials. A crew would only get paid if they delivered an entire load. By dumping the wheat or the grain into the sea, the crew was choosing life over a paycheck. And don't storms refine our priorities as well? I don't know how many of you like wrestling. I don't know how many of you know your history on wrestling. But there was one man called Yusef the Terrible Turk. He was from Turkey. Yusef Ishmael lived from 1857 to 1898. He was six feet two and over 300 pounds known as one of the strongest men of his day. And one day, this Turkish wrestler came to the U.S. in 1897 and defeated the forming wrestling champion by the name of Evan the Strangler Lewis. That is a great wrestling name, is it not? And as they wrestled with one another, the terrible Turk defeated him. And his prize money was $5,000. He didn't want that in a credit card. He didn't want that in a check. He wanted that in gold coins. And so it was paid out to him, and he had this large money belt that he would put that in. And you might ask, is that safe? Is that secure? Well, who in their right mind is going to get it from the terrible Turk? No one, right? And so he decided to go back home, and he got on a large ship. And as he was heading near Nova Scotia, His ship collided with a British vessel, and they both went down. And here the terrible Turk 
needed to make a decision. Would he choose life or would he choose his golden coins? And he kept those golden coins strapped to his waist and he plummeted to his death to the bottom of that sea. Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Riches will do you no good. As we think about storms, they can help us to prioritize life. I can think of my own life, and I think the men would agree that storms make you a better husband. Storms make you a better father. Storms can make you one that is more devoted to the Scriptures, more present on your knees in prayer. Storms are actually good for us as they refine our priorities. Well, let's continue on here as we read, picking it up in verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this journey and loss. Now one might say, here we go again, another preacher that is a know-it-all. But I think the reason he is saying this is because he is about ready to offer some more counsel or some guidance, and he wants them to follow it. So he reminds them that they should have listened the first time. Verse 22, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no one, no lost life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as it has been told. But we must run aground on some island. Here's the third truth that I think we see in this passage about storms. And that is, God reassures in storms. It has been said that Abraham Lincoln had a Bible found in his own study, in his home. And there was a smudge, from I think from his thumb, that was contained right on the Bible in Psalm 34 that was right near verse 4 that said, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. And when we are in storms, we are reassured that God is near and that God cares for us. I got three statements underneath this heading. The first is this, we belong to God. Do you see it there? He said it in verse 23. The God to whom I belong. That is a comforting thought. Some of you are are faced with challenges. A storm has moved into your life today. And you could think the problems are your problems. But if you are a Christian, you can say, this isn't my problem. This is God's problem. Because I am his property. I belong to Jesus. I belong to God. Some of you have the privilege of of living in an apartment or a house that you rent. And when the dishwasher goes out, the furnace goes out, or the hot water heater goes out, you just pick up the phone and say to the owner, you've got a problem here. Your furnace is out. Your hot water heater is out. It's not my problem because I don't own it. 
You're going to have to come by and fix it. And the same is true in the Christian's life. If you have been bought with a price, you are not your own. You are God's property. And so you say, God, this vehicle, this wayward son, this wayward daughter, this wayward grandchild, this isn't my problem. This is your problem. I am placing it into your hands. There was a preacher by the last name of Redpath. Uh, just a, a wonderful little story. One day, he, he was in his study, and his wife was making breakfast, and his wife sent the two little daughters up to alert him that breakfast was to be served. And that one daughter was a little bit older and faster, and she made her way to the study to talk to dad first, while the little daughter was kind of struggling to get there a little bit slower, a little bit smaller. And when the little girl arrived, the older daughter said, I've already told daddy breakfast is ready. And besides, I have all of daddy. The little one took that pronouncement hard. And a tear began to run down her cheek. So her father sat her on his knee. She put her head on his shoulder and then smiled big and said to her sister, You might have all of daddy, but daddy has all of me. And that's what Paul was saying as he's in the middle of the storm. I belong to God. The second thing we see here in the same verse, verse 23, is not only I belong and whom I worship. My worship is not going to stop when the storms come in. My worship is not going to stop. I'm not going to just worship when the weather is good when my health is strong, when there's no conflict in my life, and when I'm feeling at my best. No, I am going to worship in the storms. There was another time in the book of Acts where Paul and Silas were in jail. They were wrongly put there. And you remember what they did throughout the evening? They, they sang. They sang. And I can't help but think, as they're going through this turbulent storm there on the seas, that Paul might have been singing. When darkness veils his loving face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. He worships in the midst of the storms. And then finally, we see under this how he reassures. Our faith in the storm blesses others. He is assured in verse 24 that he will arrive to be able to stand before Caesar. And as a result of that promise... Everyone else on that ship will remain safe. And this speaks to sometimes our faith is a blessing to those around us. Ken Hughes, a great preacher as well as a seminary president, was telling of a time where his faith was so shaken, the storms of ministry were crashing into him, causing him to be discouraged. And one night, he was just unloading these events to his wife. And his wife said to him, Listen, 
You may not have enough faith right now, but I have enough faith for both of us. And there are times, are there not, where we can be shaken. And we need to be around other people whose faith is intact. God's grace is coursing through their veins and they, we, can, we can hook on to them to get us through that difficult time. Let's continue on here in our passage, verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspended that they were nearing land. Verse 28, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. This is like a first century depth finder. A little farther, they took a sounding again, found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boats into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. There were some that were trying to load up in that little dinghy, that little safety boat. He said, no, we're all in this together. Verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to all take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, haven't taken nothing. With this violent storm, it would have been very difficult for them to prepare food for themselves. Verse 34, Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Quoting from 1 Samuel 14, verse 45. Verse 35, and when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke and began to eat. You notice that when he prayed prior to his meal, he was filled with a group of people around him. He prayed out loud so that they could hear him giving thanks to God. Verse 36, then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. The fourth thing I think we see in this passage is that leaders surface in storms. Proverbs 24 verse 16 says, The righteous falls seven times and rises again. During this storm, all is silent. There's no word being spoken by the centurion, no word by the captain or the owner of the ship, no words by the crew. It is the preacher who gets up and says, hey, it's been 14 days since you all have eaten. It's time for you to eat. It would do you good. Not a hair is to perish from your head. Take this bread. Let us give thanks. God has provided for us today. And do you see what it says there in verse 36? They were all encouraged. A leader in the midst of a storm. And isn't that true? Storms provide opportunities. Is there a storm around you right now? Husband, dad, mom, wife, 
Sunday school teacher? Is there, is there trouble going around? May I say to you, this is an opportunity with God's grace to help you to rise to the challenge, to step up and speak the word of truth into that situation, to be an encouragement. Well, let's see how the story ends, beginning in verse 39. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed the bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosened the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being taken broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered that those who could swim to jump overboard first and make their way for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. How shall we apply these 44 verses of Acts chapter 27? I think it's clear. For you, the storm is either here or it's coming. Build your life on Jesus. Where will you turn when the storms blow in? I can think of my own life, my own story. I was here about 20 years ago living in Green Bay, and the storm blew in where I was suddenly let go from my job. I was fired. And that rocked my world as one who built his identity in his job. And suddenly I was like, who am I? What will I do? And God used that storm to strip me of my independence and my own resources to seek him for his grace. And it was here where I ended up at Highland Crest. And it was here where I ended up having friends that could minister to me Young men, older men that would pour into me. God used that storm to bring good in our life. After the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said these words. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Yes, we will experience hardships in life. Build your house. Build your life on the truth of God's word. Build it on your relationship with him. Immerse yourself with other men and women that fear the Lord, that can encourage you in this. But the Bible also speaks of another storm that is coming. It's a great storm of God's judgment. We're Each of us have strayed away in our own ways. We have been off the sea in our own sinfulness. And we will all have to give an account of our lives. 
And God has given to us a refuge, a protection from that great storm by the death and resurrection of Jesus. That if we would confess our sins and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, we might be saved and be spared from the judgment of God. Have you done that? The rescue has been sent to take you from the sea where you've been floating and to bring you into a relationship with God. What would keep you from trusting him today? Well, as Scott comes and Karen and Vana come and the music team come, let us have a word of prayer. Father, as we look here to this passage and we see a shipwreck, a famous shipwreck, we're reminded of storms that are in our lives. Perhaps there are many in this room right now that are facing a great trouble. We need to be reminded that storms do happen, even to those who are right where God wants them. That storms can refine our priorities, that get us right as close to you as we possibly can. Reminds us of the value of close relationships. We need good friends. That we can worship you in the midst of the storm. And I believe there are those that are being called out to be leaders in the midst of whatever storm that they are facing. But there also is another storm that comes it's a storm of judgment. And Lord, you've provided a way to be safe from that if we would just turn from our sins, place our faith in what Jesus has done. Today we saw Leah has done that years ago. As a little girl, she trusted you. And today she's, she's made that known publicly. I pray that we would come as a child to you whether we're 85 years old or not, we would just say, I, like a child, am completely dependent on you, my God, to save me from my sins. I, I believe in what Jesus did for me. I pray, Lord, for you to, to strengthen us, to sustain us as a church family during these days. In Jesus' name, amen.